Wait, no, go to First Timothy 6, and then we'll go to John 18. First Timothy 6. Now, I haven't left myself a lot of time, and I'm going to have to hurry here, but I'll tell you something. Let me just, as you go there, there is a, there is a little verse nestled away here in the, in the salutation, the concluding words of Paul in First Timothy 6 that strike me. And uh, it's a reference that I think must have been very, very, uh, in, in Paul's day, this is something that was very familiar to the believer. And he could make this sort of an offhand, almost incidental reference to an event, and it would be compelling and instructive to his readers. But we've lost it, and I want to help you recover it very quickly in the few minutes we've got. First Timothy chapter 6, and verse 13, Paul is, as I say, concluding the epistle, and he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and in the presence of Christ Jesus, now this is what I want you to see, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Then he goes on to say in verse 14 that you keep this commandment without stain or reproach. Paul, in, in addressing Timothy, now think with me, kids. He, Paul, in, in addressing Timothy, he says, I want you, I charge you in the name of God and in the name of Jesus who witnessed that good confession before Pontius Pilate. In other words, there was a corporate remembrance, a shared recollection in the Christian mind of this, this marvelous event when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Paul could appeal to that in order to, to instruct and compel his readers as to how they ought to live out their lives in front of a hostile world. And I believe that what Paul is suggesting there is that Jesus Christ's confession before Pontius Pilate on Friday morning before Jesus, just moments before, the last words Jesus spoke before he hanged on a cross in the record were spoken to Pontius Pilate. It is one of the most compelling scenes in the scripture, but it is one with which I think we are pretty unfamiliar. So I want you to go back to John 18 and let's just, I want you to focus in. I'm going to have to hurry. I keep saying that. Maybe I'd be done if I wouldn't keep saying I got to keep hurrying. But uh, uh, I'm just, I'm tr- I don't know how I'm going to get on. But let me just tell you, what I want you to see is uh, what I want you to do. Actually, there are two extended interviews. There are two, John, now, None of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, none of them gives us these interviews. Only John records these two interviews, with a, and they're both private. Two times in the course of the so-called trial or hearing before Pontius Pilate, Pontius calls Jesus into the inner chambers, into the praetorium, away from the masses who are screaming and, and hollering and accusing Jesus and hurling insults and accusations and so on. All of this, this, this rabid scene out here. Twice, Pilate calls Jesus into the inner chamber. And there, Jesus and Pilate have a private interview, a private conversation. Now, what is at stake here is nothing less than the death of the God-man. That's what hangs in the balance. Because Pilate, in fact, by reason of the fact that he is the Roman procurator, Pilate has the capacity to crucify Jesus or to release him. He is going to crucify him. As you know, he is going to turn him over to be crucified. But it is just absolutely impossible to overstate the emotional uh, supercharged, the emotionally supercharged atmosphere that is represented in this passage. But, uh, but I want us to look at these. But in order to do that, I think we've got to set a little background. Let me just remind you of what's going on here. Let's just say it is Friday morning. Last night, Jesus gathered with his disciples. He uh, took them to a room uh, that, that uh, he had secured in advance, and he, he partook with them of what you and I know as the Last Supper. And, of course, in the middle of that, Jesus went out to, to fetch the Sanhedrin soldiers. 
Meanwhile, Jesus got up with his disciples. He taught them across the city. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, poured out his soul in agony. And while he was doing so, the soldiers came and arrested him. That was last night or early this morning, maybe two o'clock this morning. Jesus was arrested. And then Jesus was taken to the Sanhedrin. And there were actually a series of three trials or hearings by which it was determined how Jesus was going to be accused before Rome. Because, you see, as you probably know, the Romans allowed the Jews a great deal of self-government, self-rule, but they did not allow the Jews to execute criminals. Now, many times the Jews did that if it was somebody who wasn't anybody of, you know, anybody of great repute and they could haul him off somewhere and stone him to death as in Stephen. But here you have Jesus who is without doubt the most famous from a purely human perspective. He is the most famous man who ever lived. Everybody is talking about Jesus. He is still the absolutely, uh, 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 he is still enjoying the absolute wild-eyed popularity of the masses as they're just so enthralled with this man. And so the Jews know that they can't just spirit Jesus away into a corner somewhere and stone him to death. If they are going to put Jesus to death, they are going to have to do it with Roman approval. That means they've got to go to Pilate. So I go back to it. Jesus is arrested and there is a series of three sort of trials. First of all, he's taken to the aged high priest by the name of Annas to await. He's held there while the Sanhedrin is gathered and and the aged high priest tries to extract testimony from him and Jesus refuses to, to speak. And remember, he's slapped for rebuking the high priest. But then there is the actual Sanhedrin uh, trial. There's a lot we could say about that, but suffice it to say that after several hours of suborned witnesses who, who contradicted themselves of, 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 of uh, uh, just the abs- uh, uh, high-handedly violating every canon of Jewish jurisprudence, finally, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, that body of, of self-government that was so important there in Jerusalem, the great Sanhedrin, the high priest ruled over that by a man by the name of Caiaphas, finally the high priest induced Jesus under oath to confess that he, Jesus, was the Christ, the Son of God. And the Christ means the king. And so they thought, well, we will take that to Rome. We will go to Rome and accuse Jesus of being a rival king. Now, you have to understand, that was the determined Jewish strategy. If we are going to get the Romans to put Jesus to death, we have to get something that will, some charge, some accusation, which will excite the Romans. If we go and say he teaches doctrine that we don't agree with, they're going to say, what do we care? But if we go and say he claims to be a king and you know that there is but one king and his name is Caesar, then we can paint him as a seditionist and turn the wrath of the Roman Empire upon him and they will they will allow. Now, the key was Pilate. So at any rate, that was the determination. And so now early in the morning, as a matter of fact, if you go with me to John 18 and verse uh, uh, 28, John 18 and verse 28, we'll pick it up there. This is after, it says there in verse 28, they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas, again, was the high priest, the ruler of the Sanhedrin. Are you with me? So Jesus had been for some hours. As a matter of fact, I never finished the thought. He, 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 he stood briefly before Annas, and then he stood before Caiaphas throughout the night it's for several hours. But you see, by Jewish, by but I can say this, by Jewish jurisprudence, by the laws, the canons, the standards of Jewish uh, trial procedure, a man could not be tried, nobody could ever be tried, between sundown and sunup. Are you familiar with that? They could not, because why? You tell me, what was the most basic, uh, the most basic requirement of Jewish trials? What do you got to have? Witnesses. You got to have two, or only in the mouth of two or three eyewitnesses can a matter be established. 
Well, in order to have witnesses, you have to get them out of the routine of life and so on. And in Jewish life, when the sun goes down, you go in with your family and you close the doors. And you remember the man who wanted to borrow some bread from his neighbor? And his neighbor said, what are you talking about? The door is closed. You can't come in here. Remember that? When the door closed, you go in, you have your evening meal, and you go to bed. That's, that's how the Jews live. And so the idea that you would have a trial after the sun goes down was anathema because you couldn't have witnesses. Well, this trial was in the middle of the night. It was in the middle of the night. And that was high-handedly wicked. And, well, it was a violation of their own as I say, their own canons of law. And so therefore, as the sun came up, very quickly the Sanhedrin reconvened, and in order to put some sort of a legal facade over what they'd done in the middle of the night, they simply pronounced the sentence once again. That was the third hearing. That was early in the morning, just as the sun came up. And uh, therefore now, uh, and this is, by the way, April 3rd, 33 A.D., if you're interested. So on that Friday in April... Uh, Jesus uh, is brought very early in the morning there in verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas, where he had been uh, uh, pronounced guilty once again, into the praetorium. And it was early. And notice, and this is such a one of the greatest ironies of the scriptures, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled. Now, this was Passover. There's a lot of discussion as to why, if Jesus ate the Passover last night, why these Jews were worried about uh, uh, eating it. Today, I'm not going to get into that. I can explain it to you, but uh, not right now. Thank you. But at any rate, the point is that uh, do you see the, the, the irony here? These Jews are reluctant to go into. You see, the, the Jews, the, the, the hidebound Jews felt that they defiled themselves if they went into a Gentile household. If you ever set foot in a Gentile house, you would be defiled. And uh, therefore, to go into Pilate's Praetorium, his, his, his palace, his ca- uh, palace there in, in, in uh, Western Hill in Jerusalem, would defile them. And then they'd have to seek Levitical purification, and it'd take some days, and they wouldn't be able to keep the Passover tonight, go up to the temple for the Passover. So here you have the Roman official, I'm sorry, the Jewish officials, who are busily committing the most high-handed, unspeakably wicked crime that mankind has ever committed. They are going about with knowledge of forethought to put to death the Prince of Life, and yet they are afraid that God would be unhappy with them if they stepped in a Gentile household. And so they are careful not to do it. But at any rate, picking it up, it says, um, Pilate therefore went out to them, and he asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? And then there's something remarkable that happens, and I have to point it out to you. It says, they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Do you see what they're trying to do? Now, I want you to think with me. I know we've been through a lot this morning, but think with me what's happening here. Uh, The Jews are saying, look, If this man were not a criminal, if he were not worthy of death, we wouldn't even bring him to you. Just give us the death sentence. Just give us the right to execute him. In other words, no due process. We don't want this was a ploy. This evidently they'd put their heads together and said, well, let's let's take a run at this. Let's see if we just go with great indignation and say the man's a criminal. We know it. We've tried him. Just give us the leave to put him to death. Maybe Pilate will say, go ahead and do it. But Pilate is difficult. In verse 31, Pilate therefore said to him, "Okay, take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. Don't bring him to me if you're not willing to bring the accusation against him. And the Jews said, now, wait a minute. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, quite frankly, this is one of the most, uh, this is really a remarkable passage. Notice the next verse. It says, in order that, in the Greek, it's a very clear purpose clause. All of this happened in order that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Folks, in order to really understand what's going on here with Pilate, you have, to, you have to start out acknowledging these two things. Number one, the death of Jesus had to happen, right? I mean, there's no doubt how, what the denouement of this story is going to be. 
We don't enter this story, and Jesus didn't, wondering if maybe he was going to escape. He had come into the world to give himself a ransom for many. So number one, and I think we can say theologically and textually, we know how the story is going to end in the short run. Jesus is going to die. That is the story with regard to Pilate. Pilate is going to turn him over for execution. We know that because we've read the next chapter. But the fact is that Jesus going in knew that. But I want you to see something else. And this is this is a little subtle. And that is not only was it was it certain that Jesus was it necessary that Jesus die, but it was necessary that he die in a certain way. Now, I want you to, you remember John 3 and verse 14. You remember that verse? You say, remember, as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, what? as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what? You remember? Even so, what? Must. Even so, I'm, I'm quoting the King James. You're at a disadvantage. What can I tell you? But, but uh, that's what it says in the Greek. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up. Uh, Look at John 8 real quickly. In verse, uh, I think it's verse 28. John 8. Yes, John 8 and verse 28. This is Jesus, of course, uh, contesting with the Pharisees. And in John 8 and verse 28, he says, this is a remarkable verse, When you lift up, there it is again, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak those things as the Father taught me. Uh, The Son of Man must be lifted up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know who he is. Now go to John chapter 12. John makes three references to this, and then it comes to its climax there in John 18, the verse we saw. In John chapter 12, there's a marvelous passage here, but look at verse 32. Jesus, in this conclusion to the first part of the book of John, says in verse 32, now watch this, If I be lifted up from the earth... I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Now, look, folks, you might say, well, lift up there just means to honor and to glorify. Well, let's just check. Let's look at verse uh, 33. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, the reference to lifting up is a that is it's a reference to 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 crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying back there in John three is uh, the son of man must be lifted up. John eight. If the Son of Man is lifted up, then will men know concerning him who he is. Then John 12, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. Now, that all comes together in John 18. Go there, back there with me in that verse that I just... And, and uh, well, it's going to take me a minute to explain this, but I think it's marvelous. What do you think so far? <laughs> um, I hope I'm, you're with me, but, but here's, here's what happened. Jesus, let me ask you this. What sort of death would we have expected Jesus to die? I mean, if he was going to be put to death, pardon me, you'd expect him to be stoned to death by, by the Jews, would you not? And there are several times when the Jews do take up stones to stone him. And yet the Bible says, and I struggle with this for some time, the Bible says that it is necessary for Jesus to be lifted up. Well, how did that come to pass? Without getting too deeply into it, let me just tell you that Jesus very deliberately conducted himself in these last days of his earthly life before his crucifixion in such a way that he absolutely obligated the Jews to employ the Romans to put him to death. The Jews could not do it himself. 
because of the raising of Lazarus, because of the, you see what Jesus had done is excite all sorts of attention concerning him to himself and so on. Everybody was talking about him. And so now he was such a celebrity. He was, he was so notorious, if you don't mind, that the Jews couldn't possibly afford, uh, the, 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 the they couldn't just spirit him off and put him to death. They'd create such an uprising that the Roman would punish them, the Jews. And so the Jews had to go to the Romans. And the Romans put people to death by crucifixion. Well, you go to John chapter 18, as I say, the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. They say, uh, just put him to death. Don't worry about a thing. We know he's guilty. And Pilate says, no, I'm not going to do that. If that's what you want, just go to attend to it yourself. And the Jews confess with their own lips, you know we can't do that. And... Verse 33, I'm sorry, verse 32, John says that all this happened in the Greek, it's very strong, in order that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he, was, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, the point is, Pilate had to be a player in order that Jesus would die by being lifted up. This is a bit of an aside, but I think having spent the time, it's important. Why do you think it was important that Jesus die by crucifixion as opposed to, for instance, by stoning? You ever thought about that? I don't suppose you have. But I mean, it doesn't say there, if I be lifted up, then I'll draw him into myself. If I be lifted up, then will men know. So the lifting up, the death by crucifixion is important. You know why that is? I'm convinced. I'll just tell you. There are a lot of different ideas, but I happen to know the right one. So let me just tell you that one. You know why that is? I'm convinced. Stoning could be botched. It really could. Do you remember the story of Paul being stoned in Lystra? Then he got up and walked into town and to this day. Bible readers argue whether that means that he, he was brought back to life or, in fact, they just did a lousy job and missed. So stoning could be botched. There has never been another mode of execution which was so publicly and certifiably certain. That is, everybody, he was lifted up to die. You know why that was? He was lifted up to die before the eyes of the masses. You know why that was? Because Rome designed crucifixion specifically to put to an end any seditious movement. So if, 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 I, if this is Rome and I decide that I'm going to lead a rebellion against it and the Romans get a hold of me and you're my followers, they want you to watch me die horribly. And they want me to watch it. There are two things going on here. Number one, if I'm held up and I die a, an excruciating death, it's going to have the effect, is it not, of retarding the seditious impulse in your own breast, isn't it? You're going to say, ooh, I don't know about it. Maybe life ain't so bad after all. Maybe I'll just stay with what I got. And so the point is, it's going to, it's going to arrest that seditious impulse on the part of the masses. The second thing is very important, and that is it's going to put to death any notion that I'm around anymore to lead you in sedition. Nobody's going to be able to say, oh, guess what? He escaped because all those people watched me die. And while I was hanging there on that cross, there was physical evidence. Remember the blood and water that came out? That was very important because it was evidence of death. Now, the importance of that is that nobody could later claim. Now, they have. They've, they've made up all sorts of idiot stories about how Jesus swooned on the cross and when he was put in the coolness of the tomb and so on. That helped him and he woke up and rolled away a several ton tomb and walked out. But the fact of the matter is that that uh, you, you, you can't believe that if you know anything about Roman crucifixion. You can't possibly entertain that nonsense if you understand what wit of what Roman crucifixion was all about. Now, where am I taking you with all that? Simply this, that according to John, it was all important that Jesus die by crucifixion. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to die at the hands of the Romans. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to confront the procurator 
who in the timely providences of God just happened, if you don't mind, to be in charge of Jerusalem at that moment. His name was Pontius Pilate. Now, very quickly, and I'll do this. There are two extended interviews. And if you go with me just real quickly to John 18, verse 33. Let me just, you know what, I think I'll just read them to you and then, and then and I'll let you draw some of your own conclusions. I want you to see, though, you know, let me, let me just skip to my, skip to my conclusion here. In, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus is dispatching, don't go there, but Jesus, because you all know it by heart. Jesus is dispatching the disciples or the apostles. Remember when he sent them out two by two, gave them miracle working power and sent them out two by two to bear his message? And he said this to him. He said, you remember this, be as wise, what? And what? And as harmless as doves. This is history's best illustration of what it means to be as wise as serpents. And the word means shrewd. To be as shrewd and as conniving and as clever and as, as, as careful in your planning and so on as a serpent. And yet by the same token be as, and the word harmless means absolutely innocent. Now, I would suggest to you, you know, Joe made me think of it, Mr. Davis made me think of it when, we, when he talked about the importance of, uh, of uh, playing basketball in a way that exudes excellence while remembering whose we are and whose the glory is. That is what it is to be as wise as serpents. Now, I mean, that's a rather, you know, mundane and narrow illustration of it, but the point is to go out and do everything you possibly can and play as well as you can is to be as wise as serpent, but to realize whose you are and whose the glory is is to be as innocent as dust. Well, uh, leave the basketball team. Let's go back to Jesus. Jesus before Pilate is the single best illustration of that in all human history. Now, let me just read it to you real quickly. John 18, the first, the first, uh, Interview is, begins in verse 33. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. He's gone in. And he says, you are the king of the Jews, right? There's a question. Are you the king of the Jews or aren't you? And Jesus answers him and says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did, did, did others tell you about me? In other words, what he's saying is, you're a, you're a Roman officer. As, as such, you often have to put down seditions. And there are false kings and so on. Now, did you look at my life and say, there's a man who's dangerous. There's a man who's a threat to Rome. Is that what happened here? Or did somebody come and just make this claim? Well, of course, you know exactly what happened. Jesus is saying, you know very well. I wouldn't even be standing here before you if the evidence had anything to do with it. Nobody's ever accused me of mounting a sedition. Nobody's ever come running to the Roman officials and say, oh, you got danger up there in Nazareth or over there in Capernaum because this guy's mounting a sedition. I've been going everywhere. Now, I'm putting a lot of words in Jesus' mouth here. Forgive me. But, but I think that's exactly the point. I've been going everywhere throughout the land for two or three and a half years. You, you, I, everybody knows who I am. Are you coming and charging me because of the evidence? Or is it just some sort of, a, of an insipid accusation? And, and, and Pilate acknowledges. He says in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? I don't have anything to do with that culture. I don't know what goes on in that culture. Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. Now tell me, what have you done? Now you have to understand, by both Roman and Jewish jurisprudence, and it's the same, we have borrowed this concept. You know, the Fifth Amendment. You, uh, yeah, the, the, a man is not required to testify against himself. Nobody can ever be a, 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 a required to testify against himself. And, and that was, that, that's borrowed from Jewish and Roman jurisprudence. They were not. And so Jesus was under no obligation to speak to, to Pilate in such a way as to, you know, in his own defense. But Jesus says this. In other words, uh, Pilate has said, all right, I'm not a Jew. I can't. You tell me what you have done. And verse 36, Jesus says this. Here is one of the most maligned passages of the scripture. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, let me just get exercised for 30 seconds. 
People come to this and they say, well, what's going on here is that Jesus is redefining the kingdom. In the Old Testament, it was clearly a kingdom, like a a, a literal kingdom on earth. In the Old Testament, the Jew, the believer, was taught to anticipate a Messiah who would come and establish a fifth world kingdom. In in Daniel 2 and 7, you have four Gentile kingdoms and they are replaced, and the word is the same, by a fifth world kingdom that will never end. So the Jew in the Old Testament, the Old Testament student, is taught to anticipate a literal kingdom, albeit one that is dramatically and, and in every way different from the world's kingdom as far as the motive, as far as the means by which... But it's a kingdom with a king and people and land and the subjects. Well, that's in the Old Testament, but Jesus here now in private conversation that nobody else could hear with Pilate says, you know what, the Old Testament was confusing. My kingdom's not like that at all. And he redefines the concept of the kingdom. Jesus never redefined the concept of the kingdom. I am looking forward, folks, to that day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the sea. I am hungry for the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And I am horribly exercised by the notion that you can excise that hope from me and from this book with some hermeneutical alchemy. Forgive me. But... uh, Back to it, the point is, what does he mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? He simply means, and he goes on to say what he means in that same verse when he says, uh, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. In other words, the standard way to establish a kingdom or to effect a sedition is to raise up a small army and to go after the people in power. Jesus' followers were not doing that. So the point is, my kingdom, Pilate, you have nothing to fear from me as a seditionist. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is one day going to establish a kingdom. But he is not going to do it by hiding away in caves and, 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 and uh, uh, gathering a little army around him and going out and, and uh, uh, in guerrilla warfare, attacking Roman outposts and so on. He is going to descend from the, with the clouds of heaven, with the armies of heaven. He is going to descend uh, as, a, as a mighty conqueror. Amen and amen? So that's what he's saying. Well, at any rate, uh, Pilate, uh, and then he says, verse 37, this is... Jesus says, Pilate answers him, first of all, are you a king or not? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose, for this very purpose I have been born, for this very purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to this truth. Everyone who is of this truth, everyone who is willing to witness to this truth, that I am king, hears my voice. So Jesus, on the one hand, I want you to catch On the one hand, he is terribly sensitive to Pilate. On the other hand, he absolutely refuses to compromise the truth. You bet I'm a king. Well, there's a great deal that goes on. I was going to walk you through it, but let me just take you down to uh, verse uh, uh, 8 of chapter 19. Because what happens is Pilate once again summons Jesus, and I'm just going to read it to you. And what had happened is Pilate had struggled to release Jesus. And he had even gone to the people and tried to get them to to, uh, release him. But they had said, no, he makes himself out to be the son of God. And Pilate was traumatized by that. And so verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, that is, that Jesus made himself out to be the son of God, he was the more afraid because he was afraid he was standing in front of the son of God, I believe. And he entered in the Praetorium again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. He stood there mute because, after all, uh, he was not required to testify against himself. And then watch this, verse 10. Pilate therefore said to him, you don't speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered and said this, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. That's Romans 13, is it not? He would have no... God is in this, and, and Jesus knows that his Father is in this, but then he goes on to say, For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. He is Caiaphas, 
He is saying the Jews knew exactly what they were doing with malice aforethought, knowing that I was what I claimed to be. They turned me over to you. They have the greater sin, but Pilate, that doesn't mean you have no sin. And Pilate is to be regarded as, as reprehensible. This was a represent, reprehensible act. But finally, verse 13, uh, verse 12, I'm sorry. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. The Bible never tells us what those efforts were. But he went out and did all that he could to release Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> But the Jews kept crying out, verse 12, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard, therefore, these words, and by the way, Pilate had every reason. He was living on thin ice. We know a great deal about Pilate from history. And he had already offended the Roman government over much. And he knew that if the Jews carried a report back to Rome, he was history. And therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat him down in the, he sat down in a judgment seat at a place called the pavement. He sat down in a sort of a judgment throne. And uh, he said, uh, verse 14, behold your king. And the people cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And therefore, verse 16, he delivered him up to them to be crucified. Now, folks, I, there's a lot more I want to say about that, and I'm over time. I'm going to let you go right now. But let me just tell you, I'm going to go back where I started. Paul is convinced, Paul was convinced in his day, that his reader, Timothy, and, and the others to whom he's writing there in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy 6.13, ought to build, to a significant degree, they ought to pattern their lives after, and when, when you, let me say it this way, when you face a hostile world, which you do day in and day out, when you face a hostile world, you ought to take as your paradigm, as your pattern, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Now, I didn't spend time really working you through it, but read those passages. Let me just implore you to do that. And certainly acknowledge this, as I said before. Jesus, on the one hand, was marvelously sensitive to Pilate himself. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, was absolutely uncompromising with reference to the truth. As a result, you know, there is a very strong tradition, and we'll have to wait for some time, perhaps, who knows how long to determine for sure, but there is a very strong tradition that Pilate became a believer. And there's even a church in his name in, in, uh, in uh, actually in uh, Europe because he was banished there by the emperor and finally, as best we can tell, committed suicide. But nonetheless... It is clear in the record that Jesus' testimony before Pilate, and I tried to describe this to you, in one of the most uh, emotionally supercharged scenes you can possibly imagine, that Jesus' quiet and compelling testimony before Pilate had a marvelous, marvelous impact. And we have been enjoined by the good confession which Jesus spoke before Pilate. We have been enjoined, it seems to be First Timothy, to keep the same commandment. I hope that's some help. Let's have a word of prayer and we're done. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for our Lord, and we thank you, Father, for the testimony of his life that we have here in the Gospels. And many times we, uh, uh, it, it, it's some work to work our way through some of these events and some of these narratives and so on, and to ferret out the lesson that is there for us. And Father, uh, I am compelled by the fact that Paul was so struck by these, by these words and by these interviews. And Father, we want to be pressed into the image of your dear Son. We want your Spirit to to so shape us and conform us to the image of your Son that our testimony can be powerful for your glory. And, Father, I pray that even this, uh, this incident might be instructive and that, Father, we might know what it is, on the one hand, to be as wise as serpents, but on the other hand, to be as harmless as doves, and thus to bear the testimony that you're anxious to have us bear. Well, thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.